0: If people don't like to admit that they're wrong on politics, they really don't like to admit that they're wrong on religion.
1: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this one's a bit personal. Until today, one topic we haven't really touched on in any meaningful way is the relationship between evangelicals and the Republican Party. If you've followed my work since 2020 or maybe you watched the Showtime documentary, you might know that I grew up in a devoutly evangelical community. My father was the pastor of our church. My mother raised us and worked in the church office. I was homeschooled through the elementary grades before I was sent to Christian school, where every morning we recited not one, but three pledges of allegiance. With our hands over our hearts, the first was, of course, to the American flag— The second pledge was to the Christian flag, which I'll bet a lot of you didn't even know existed. And the third one was a pledge to the Bible, at which point we moved our hands from our hearts to our Bibles, just like when our politicians are sworn in. So when my friend Mike Madrid told me about a new book coming out about the evangelical movement, written by a political journalist who grew up in the evangelical community, I nearly lurched out of my seat. You see, it's not every day You meet someone who also knows what it's like to experience the lonely pain and fear and uncertainty of dismantling an entire worldview and leaving your community behind because you have to. In the world I came from, there's a major emphasis placed on telling others about one's relationship with God and how that relationship has transformed one's life. Oftentimes, there would be a special part of a church service set aside for this purpose. For people to come forward and do it publicly. We called it Offering Your Testimony. That's also the title of the book we're going to talk about today, which is such an honest and relatable account of what it was like to grow up in and leave an evangelical community that I was constantly connecting it to my own story. And I am grateful for the way it's made me feel seen and understood. So today I'm bringing you John Ward, and I hope it gives you some insight into the dominant thinking and motivations of evangelicals across the country and how those beliefs have shaped their relationship with politics. More than anything, though, I hope people on the inside and the outside of evangelical communities will be moved by how John's story illuminates a different way for faithfulness to inform and shape political engagement in the world. John Ward is the author of Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement That Failed a Generation, It comes out on April 18th, but you can and absolutely should pre-order it now. I highly recommend it. Just click on the link in our show notes. John is also the chief national correspondent for Yahoo News. He has covered American politics and culture for two decades, including a stint as a White House correspondent. He's covered two presidential campaigns, and he's also the host of a podcast called The Long Game. And now, John Ward. Truth seeking is not an easy endeavor, especially now. But deciding that that's what you're after, and you're willing to set aside things that don't align with uh, empirical evidence, um, I think that's the first place. And there were plenty of things I can remember from my childhood where that wasn't the case. Um, Young Earth creationism was mm-hmm. was one, yeah, um, which was very very much taught as fact uh, in you know, the Christian science classes that I took. Um, so where did that come from? Where, what, what catalyzed that? Um, we'll, well, now that we've talked about the term, we'll use anti-intellectualism uh, in that way.
0: Where do you think that came from in the culture we're, we're talking about? Where did the anti-intellect? Yeah. I mean, historians trace it back to the beginning of evangelicalism in America uh Francis Fitz, FitzGerald's book um i think it's just called Evangelicals mm, yeah i um, have it on my bookshelf yeah it's daunting <laughs> it is and i've only read the first <laughs> third massive. or half it's massive yeah uh but the first third or half to deal with this you know origin story in america at least they you know evangelicalism um goes beyond america but um yeah. and has some scottish influence that i'm not as familiar with but um but in america it was actually um a function of class To some degree, to a large degree, Fitzgerald documents that, you know, a lot of early evangelicalism was um, sort of a a revolt against Mm. um, uh, churches that were controlled by the upper class, um, the landowners, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was more people who were, um, you know, less educated uh, on the frontier, riding the circuit, that sort of thing. And again, it's the quest for authentic uh, religious experience, a lot of emotion. Uh, you do have the two great awakenings that played roles in all this. So I think the roots are pretty clearly established as historical, and um, and go beyond even you know the 20th century. There was a book uh, which uh, I which was written in 1995 called "The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind." by a historian uh, named Mark Knoll, who I taught at Notre Dame for a long time, um, but is also an evangelical. Um, And so that is one of the more recent sort of historical documents that charts this. um, Although uh, Fitzgerald's book just came out like within the last 10 years. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I, I haven't gotten anywhere near as far as you have, but um, it's a, it's a project. Um,
0: But I want to talk
1: about Palin in this, uh, in this respect. So, You write about the shift that happened in 2008, um, and particularly Sarah Palin as the catalyst for this. You write, Governor Palin appealed to the most populist, anti-intellectual, and nativist instincts on the right. She had little in the way of qualifications for the job of vice president, and even less for the presidency, but she could give a good speech. And you go on to write, Palin's approach was to oversimplify everything and to lean hard into scapegoating the other side. So why do you think this was so resonant among evangelical Christians?
0: Well, she speaks their language. She's from a non-denominational charismatic church in Alaska. Uh, that that branch of Protestantism, uh, non-denominational churches, is now the largest group of Protestant uh, Christians in As America. Of, wow. As of a 2020 study, um, there are 21 million non-denominational Christians. The next largest group uh, is 17 million Southern Baptists. Wow. So um, she spoke their language. She was from sort of that corner of evangelicalism. And again, there's this dynamic when people who are not from this religious subculture overstep and uh, show scorn and contempt. Um, it elevates the stakes. It reinforces this sense of persecution. Um, and it totally pushes people to double, triple, quadruple down. And that dynamic has just been happening over and over since 2008 before that, but on, 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 on like hyperdrive. Yeah. But many people have,
1: have marked that year and that speech, frankly, as the, as a turning
0: point. Um, uh, uh, so for McCain, it was just a pure political calculation. Yeah, totally. But, um, but it played into a much larger set of, of factors.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the the sense of persecution again. If you if you really want to understand this, go watch those two movies I (laughs) I mentioned uh, because it is deep. It's like you know it's in my bones. I can still feel that from um, from that time. Um, uh, You write um, many conservative Christians already thought that expertise was bad and that insiders were inherently corrupt simply because they were insiders. And Palin encouraged that thinking. Have you seen that carried forward from
0: two thousand eight to now? Uh, did you live through 2020? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I wrote like a poem a year or two ago, uh, you know, where I can't remember what it was, but there was a relative who had sort of, um, I think they were criticizing fact checkers and I kind of riffed off that and imagined other ways in which you could question expertise. One of which was, uh, dentistry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and sure enough, the other day I read something that there is such a thing now as DIY dentistry. No, yeah. no. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we've seen it um, accelerate, you know, 10x since uh, since 2008. I do think, again, that that distrust of expertise and outsiders uh, has a lot to do with the insularity. Um, because if if people outside our camp are are kind of bad, then um, we can only trust people from inside the camp. That really has been a fundamental um, paradigm for a lot of evangelicals to differing degrees, um, but uh, to millions of of American Christians uh, for a long time. And then you just layer on top of that uh, the impact of the internet and the destruction of sort of an ordered epistemology an ordered information environment, um, which goes, you know, way beyond any discussion of religion. Uh, Jonathan Raush's book, the constitution of knowledge is a really important look at that whole dynamic. Um, but that's how you get to where we are now. my, my
1: brother-in-law who's an actual dentist is mortified by, by, by needing sure he's listening to this oh, <laughs> at, at yeah. DIY dentistry. I did yeah. not know that was a
0: thing. Yeah.
1: Um, Okay, so you start the third section of the book. The book is broken up into three sections we should mention to people. Uh, The third one is um, uh, about writing and learning and thinking about having conversations about the phrase. That's how you open it, about Black Lives Matter. Mm, Right. Um, uh, Can you talk about how those conversations impacted you, and what did it teach you about engagement and defensiveness?
0: Yeah, so this is 2013 or so. Uh, Michael Brown is killed in Ferguson, Missouri. Trayvon Martin was killed around that time. Um, I think before Michael Brown, um, you have the, the rise of the black lives matter movement. And you know, so this is 10 years ago. Um, I'm 35. We have three kids by this time. I've been in journalism for about, you know, 11, 12 years. Um, and I th- you know, I would have liked to have thought that I was uh, a little more ad- advanced on race, but I really had a still very embedded um, conservative outlook on it. And um, this is how you know when you have sins of omission, <laughs> um, when you're not uh, sympathetic or, or can't even listen to or, or maybe just your knee jerk reaction is one of defensiveness. So I noticed that in myself, and I started, but I I saw that people of color, black people in particular, were having a very different reaction to Michael Brown than I was. And um, at some point, I'm sure I pinpoint it a little more precisely in the book, but um, I began to um, look for ways to use my position as a journalist to ask uh, questions, um, to engage in, in conversation that where I could like actually ask some of my questions which you know is one of the great things about journalism it's a way to it's a magic carpet to take you out and and put you in positions where you can actually seek answers to to real questions and so yeah as an aside yeah. I love the
1: way you use you flip back and forth between the evangelical culture and the training that you were going through to become a journalist mm-hmm. at that time and how like the search for objectivity was in a way what kept you grounded, mm-hmm. uh, at certain times. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. I thought that was beautiful and, and really illuminating. Cause it's all this stuff is happening at once, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. not like, that's right. This is, this is one, you know, all of this stuff is happening all at once. And so you really give a sense of what it was like to struggle with both of those things at the same time.
0: Yeah. So, and the catechesis to use yeah. that term again of, of yeah. the journalism craft or, or profession is very different. And that's than, than the one of the church. Um, And, uh, you know, I, I I say I was saved from fundamentalism by journalism, but you know, those conversations where I was able to ask questions, I was honestly, you know, having and express some of my own perspective, um, and then listen to the response. I just, I just saw firsthand how powerful it was and what a gift it was to me, um, to sit in the discomfort of hearing things that I, that made me uncomfortable or that rubbed against my um, assumptions and, um, you know, our, our sort of natural human instinct, anytime we hear anything we disagree with is to argue with it. And, um, if we can exercise the self-control to listen, to sit, to not respond, um, and then think, about what was said, Um, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a real gift. It's a real like adventure, I would say. Um, And and that's actually one of the great challenges of the last several years. I think Trump elevated everything to an existential crisis, sometimes justifiably so justifiably. So, but I think it, it has become sort of the norm for our processing of reality at a certain point during Trump's presidency, everything was an existential crisis to many people. Which you know, that's just that can never be the case. Yeah, and it's not sustainable. Yeah, yeah, and, and even now, uh, I, I think too much of our settings are are on this lookout for every, for a lot of things being a, an existential crisis, and and I think I don't know. I just uh, I understand again, like that's kind of who I am. I'm, 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 I guess I'm an empath. I understand where people are coming from, but um, but I think uh, we have to find ways to try to get as many things as possible to a place where we can um, sit with yeah, things that we don't understand or that we disagree with and really kind of slow down. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I think yeah. it's, it's the existential nature of everything and the speed at which everything is moving. That is increasingly, Destabilizing. I'm actually not as um, concerned now as I was during Trump's presidency. Yeah. If he becomes president again, you know, I'm, I'll be very concerned because I think like he's shown that he wants to, yeah. um, you know, undermine democracy.
1: Yeah. The, the 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 um, it serves him the chaos and the. And but the, but
0: you know, I've also learned like from that whole experience, there are limits. Yeah. To the effectiveness of um, speaking you know, speaking your mind yeah, um, all the time on everything. So I think no matter what happens in the future, I will be more judicious mm. um, and, uh, and probably a little, a little
1: looking to, to pick yeah. spots. I, I wanted to uh, uh, pull on this just a little bit more because as a, uh, both, both as a journalist and as a human being who's, who's um, had to, you know, Reckon with the culture that you were brought up in. What are some ways that you have found that are useful to carry that into other controversial or tense mm-hmm. conversations? Are there, do you do you have tools? Do you have mental habits? Do you have um, you know models that you mm. are there, is there? What is what is it that um, because it's one thing I think to say to people, just calm down and listen,
0: yeah, right? Right.
1: And it's an entirely different thing to actually put that into practice when you're face to face with either a family member or an estranged family member or a casual friend who you suddenly learn has a violently different view uh, on something that's very important to you. How do you do, maybe, maybe your, maybe your framework for doing that as a journalist is different from um, in personal relationships. But what would you, what do you say to people who are like, yeah, but I don't know how to do that? This is a really important issue. And
0: a lot of the work of figuring out how to do this has been figured out for me by just adopting the journalist uh, you know, approach, which which requires a certain amount of detachment. It requires you to think of the conversation you're having as an attempt to understand the other person and to uh, comprehend their thinking and feeling and, and mindset um, and then convey it to someone else rather than as a, as a struggle or an argument between me and them. Um, so I think that's, but but your question actually makes me think I I should do more to kind of lay out, um, what this this works like yeah, or or how it works. I think
1: the training of a journalist is actually, I mean, I know, I know lots of people like to rail against journalists right now as a, as a species, (laughs) but, but the work, if you're doing it properly, uh, I think is enormously instructive for everybody's sort of day-to-day operations now. Because as you said, it's not just about um, really understanding the person, but if you have in the back of your mind that there's going to be a test or I've got to accurately Mm -hmm. um,
0: represent this person's views to someone
1: else, Mm -hmm. you're listening in a different way.
0: Yeah. Um, There are some other things I could throw in there. I mean, just this whole idea that I don't have to be right. Um, is important, but, uh, yeah. And there's not a lot of good models out there. I was thinking a few moments ago, like if I, if you ever see me out there, like arguing with everybody, it'll be because I've gotten a a talk radio show or a cable show, Yeah, you know, most of our models are of people who just argue all the time. Yeah. Um, so I do think John Dickerson at CBS is, is an outlier on this. He's one of my favorite political journalists. Yeah. I mean, he's he's really, I, 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 again, I've only uh, consumed a little bit of his show, but what I've, because I, I don't really watch TV, but yeah. what I've seen, he's really trying to carve out some space in his uh, nightly news show for thoughtful consideration yeah. of issues, yeah. of substance, yeah. which uh, is unfortunately not very common. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He does it with grace too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think he does a really good job. Uh, okay. So um, to 2016 then, uh you write that in the lead up to 2016 the election um you saw conservative white christians demonstrating much more fear than faith um can you explain what you were seeing and how what you
0: saw as someone who who grew up in this space differ from what outsiders were seeing well i guess the reference to outsiders might be a reference to the fact that a lot of people thought uh a lot of trump supporters were just based on uh Racism yeah. or, or, or prejudice yeah. or xenophobia or native. Presenting nativism. them as a monolithic yeah. force for evil. Yeah. 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 Um, for a long time, as I think we've kind of discussed already, evangelicals have thought of themselves as uh, a belabored minority. Um, that obviously has not been true. It's becoming more true mm-hmm. as the country becomes less religious, at least the minority part. Yeah but you know even now religious liberty is um, probably at a historic high oh, yeah. in this country yeah i mean david french who
1: i read and listen to often is quite adamant that right. protections for religious freedom which is his forte yeah. are the strongest right. that they've ever been right. yeah
0: um but there was that sort of historical background and um and again when 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 a lot of evangelicals have spent a lot of their lives uh, as antagonists toward culture outside the church, rather than as uh, stakeholders, that creates um, a lack of of uh, sophistication in how they are able to sort of discern what's happening, a vulnerability to manipulation yeah. by people who want to take advantage of that and mobilize them and use them, um, and and so then the elements of culture or politics that are hostile to, to the religious point of view are often taken and, um, uh, I I think exaggerated. I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty fair to say it's exaggerated into Mm -hmm. an existential threat, um, to go back to that phrase. And so I think another thing that happened though, was the Obergefell decision. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember, which I, I write about this as well, like about 10 years before that I was covering a local sex education curriculum dispute Mm -hmm. in, um, in Montgomery County, Maryland, just outside DC. And it was clear to me then as like a, you know, late twenties, you know, still fairly inexperienced journalist. I was like, okay, this is clearly where things are headed. Like yeah. same sex marriage, marriage yeah. equality is that's where things are headed. Yeah. Um, it's just sort of an inevitable, but again, a lot of people weren't tracking this from, right. the, from the conservative religious community. They, and so the Burgerfeld decision, I think was a shock to a lot of people. Um, and, and accelerated this sense of, you know, we're under, we're under siege. Um, There's always though, this narrative of, you know, the left is out to get us. So all of that is wrapped up. Trump comes along and, you know, I think it's important to stress that there was a lot of evangelicals, certainly pastors. Certainly evangelical elites and then certain percentage of, yeah. of lay members who are not for him in the primary. Um, That's right. And, uh, and wanted Rubio or Bush or mm-hmm. Cruz or um, Kasich. And, uh, and I do think it's really important actually for people to grasp this. This because, is important. Yeah, yeah. Because this is, gets to where we are right now in yes. this cycle. Yes. Um, the, the primary is so much more important than the general. Um, because once you get into a R versus D contest, people's tribal identity kicks in, it's much less about, um, persuasion choosing among different options. It just becomes put on the team Jersey and, you know, get to war. And, uh, and so there was a lot of movement in the 2016 primary. And, and then what I would have liked to have seen, um, would be evangelicals and, and people of faith, um, conservative re- religious conservatives in 2016, once it did become, you know, Republican versus Democrat, I would have liked to have seen more of the, the faith perspective and and the, the religious identity, um, kick in and, and drive decision-making, um, and, and religious principles drive, you know, the calculation. Some people would have still voted for Trump. I'm sure some people wouldn't, but by and large that, that went out the window, the political identity came in. And to the extent that religious identity was a part of the equation, it was really just Trump saying, we got to protect Christianity. I'll protect you. Um, and that and abortion were the two sort of big factors for a lot of religious conservatives that led them to overlook everything else. Um, and, uh, and so abortion's one part, but then this, this, this fear issue is the other part. My perspective was at the time, and still remains this way, let's say all of the concerns about, you know, being imperiled are true. Um, Does it justify uh, voting for somebody who um, has made clear that he disregards the Constitution? and? uh, disregards democracy, which again, those were the main issues to me. He was signaling to me that he did not take democracy seriously or the law. Um, and so, uh, when you, when you are willing to go with somebody who is made clear, he wants to trample on the law and on the constitutional order and on democracy, that is kind of, but he's saying, I'll protect you. That is saying uh, that that is putting your own self-preservation ahead of the common good. In my Yeah. View. Yeah. If you understand
1: democracy as a word to mean the system by which our rights of assembly are guaranteed to us, uh, the you know there's an easy logical connection there to, well, this person is hostile to the very system that allows us to, you know, to to operate our our churches and our from outside of the purview of the federal government. So, yeah, there's he has said he will allow our our type to associate, right. Which reminded me of uh, a conversation I relayed on the podcast in 2020 after uh, I had a conversation with an, uh, a very close family friend um, and a friend of my parents, right? And um, I remember saying in the middle of 2020 when I was home for a visit to this person, we were talking about Trump, and I was sort of baffled as to how someone with a very deep faith. Could stomach voting for this man. And it came down to abortion. That was the issue. And I remember posing a question rhetorically, uh, uh, just as a way to sort of jog the conversation out of this crazy town that I <laughs> thought we had gone into. And I said, Well, if, you know, if the country, you know, wasn't a democracy, say, like, it, would you be willing to give up? Um, Democracy in exchange for, say, a theocracy. If you got more of what you wanted, would you be okay with that? Would you want that? Um, Expecting an obvious no, but the response I got was, "Hmm, I'd have to think about that." And and that was sincere, right? Um, um, and so that was that was an eye opening moment for me. Uh, I wasn't expecting that, and certainly. Did not expect that to be sort of emblematic of the way so many Christians were thinking about the election of Donald Trump in 2016, 2020, uh, re electing this man. Um, but it gets to a question of power, right? Uh, as you said, he said he would, he would allow us to continue, right? right. He would protect us. Yeah. And you quote the Russian American writer, um, Masha Gessen, uh, that to Donald Trump, being right was a question of power, not evidence. Um, That Trump constructed his own reality, uh, that he had uh, no longer had to be bound by any objective reality, that changing his story at will was a demonstration of his power. Um, So thinking about power, right, how do those underlying structures um, of how the evangelical communities functioned, how did they support this idea of power? What, What was attractive, do you think, about power essentially sublimating faith. Um, how do you think about that?
0: Uh, Again, I think that a lot of evangelicalism has been trained over the last several decades to act politically, um, in a way that is not very infused by the, a a fulsome of application of Christian teachings. Um, and that is a failure of the evangelical church to catechize people into a faithful living out of their Christian principles outside the church life. I do make a distinction. I think a lot of American Christians are good people who do a lot of good, especially in the private sphere. Sure, there are a lot of scandals with religious leaders, but, but there are many, many excellent, upstanding, devout. Uh, wonderful people in these churches who are good fathers, good husbands, um, good bosses, uh, good employees. Um, but what the church has not done is develop a culture through liturgy, through um, tradition and, and through uh, intellectualism of uh, of doing what somebody who I, I don't know a lot about, I, I'm sort of, Being drawn right now to want to study more of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's uh, writings. But he talked about civic righteousness, which is an attempt to live out your faith in in the public square, outside the church. And to me, the distinction is between private character and public character. And I think uh, private character is something evangelicals are are very good at, but public character is something that has been largely overlooked.
1: We've talked about. Abraham Lincoln's Cooper Union address on the show uh, quite a few times um and it was the speech that really launched him to win the primary um and launched the Republican Party into prominence um and he, and in that speech he was urging Republicans to speak out against slavery when it wasn't a political po- politically popular decision um and he told them not to bow down to false accusations or uh be frightened by the repercussions he said and a lot of people quote this speech as the right makes might speech Um, but they forget the first part (laughs) and in the first part, he says, let us have faith. And the quote goes like this, let us have faith that right makes might. And in that faith, let us to the end, dare to do our duty as we understand it. Um, uh, that even when all the cards are stacked against you, doing the right thing matters. right? Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and that doing the right thing will generate the political will and power to see it through. Um, and Trump operated operates the opposite way. In this, uh, having power um, puts you in a position to decide what is right. Right. Um, and you know you mentioned Jeff Charlotte, and um, we don't need to go too into his reporting about the family and the fellowship and stuff. But uh, there there was this sort of Jesus plus nothing ideology that they espoused, which essentially just took power as evidence of God's blessing. Mm. And if you see, uh, you know, power very simplistically in those terms through a religious lens mm-hmm. as evidence of God's blessing, well, it becomes a whole lot easier to defend anything the person in power decides to do, um, you know, until and unless they're coming after you specifically. I lay all that at your feet and wonder what you think about that dynamic and, and how it's um, playing out, could continue to play out, in either party, I suppose, but we're talking about Trump and Trumpism.
0: I, you know, I've been watching closely as I do because of my job, um, American politics for some time now, um, hoping for signs of people, uh, regardless of party, regardless of religion, um, or other characteristics to demonstrate what you just described, which is, Uh, a belief that um, acting on behalf of principle and, and the, and the, uh, the greater good, I guess, um, can create political will. Um, It's not been an encouraging decade or so. Um, I would say even predating, you know, Donald Trump, um, maybe two decades, maybe it's just the way of the world. Um, I want to believe that acting, uh, in the right will create political will, or can, or can. Won't um, always, but you know, it's not, it's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. We definitely need much more of that. We need people in in politics who are willing to uh, be a flash in the pan, I guess, yeah. because they may make a run, they they may make uh, a stand, and they may be defeated and go away. <laughs> Um, but that could inspire the next round of people to come and do that. You know, I don't want to call it a kamikaze necessarily, yeah. but it's that sort of approach. Yeah. Like, you know, right.
1: And doing it, d- it for the purpose of the thing and not for your, for yourself.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, what's tricky about politics Yeah, is there's always going to be some element of calculus, yeah. um, of if I compromise here. You know, it preserves me to fight another day to do this other bigger thing. Right. And um, I'm a big believer in compromise. I really am. Um, I I think we have too much purism or purity tests in our our politics, actually. Um, But when it comes to a certain sort of, this is why I think it's really important to think clearly about uh, how to prioritize things yeah. in terms of importance. Yeah. And for me, I'm actually pretty agnostic on most political issues. Same. both but until I know enough. And I exactly. rarely know. Exactly. Enough. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> but when it comes to preserving a free and fair uh, election and a system of democratic checks and balances and a constitutional order in which everyone can advocate for their interests through, you know, elections and courts. Uh, that is my red line. Yeah. And you know, that's what I told you, Hewitt. It's like, I don't like being in a position of taking a position on a politician, but I don't know how you can look at Donald Trump and, and, and argue that he is not, uh, proven right. And to be an enemy of those things. Um, so, you know, I think we, we, uh, we have to make that the, the real priority here. Um, and, and, uh, and it's, and I do think leadership is important. Um, so
1: last question before we wrap, I just want to talk about reform a little bit. You wrote that after January 6th, uh, a small remnant of evangelicals, uh, was going to need to call others to repentance within, um, within that culture within that subculture that any change is going to need to start with a small spark. So the question is, um, what needs to happen for that to grow from a small spark to a flame? Um, What what ne- what would have to be true in order for? Because I'm not optimistic. I'll be candid. Sure. But about I, what? About reforming evangelicalism. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, having s- spent plenty of time, uh, sort even even after leaving uh, it behind and sort of deciding what faith means for me now. Um, yeah. And, and being encouraged by the, um, the internal fights that seem to be happening, um, in some religious communities, mostly Mm -hmm. the Methodists, um, Mm -hmm. I think, um, uh, but overall, I'm not optimistic. And, and yet I wonder what would have to be true for, for, true reform to happen for that spark to become a flame for what conditions need to present themselves, mm-hmm. um, in order for there to be, or maybe it has to get worse before it gets better. And that might be, um, the truth. But I, I, I'm thinking now in terms of the people listening to us right now, mm-hmm. uh, who very likely are not anywhere near yeah. this community, yeah. okay. but see the damage that it's inflicting on our
0: politics. That's a helpful clarifier. Yeah. And yeah. so
1: what I, what I, what I'm really in getting at is, um, Is there anything constructive that people outside this community can do or say uh, without making the problem worse by activating that persecution instinct? Right. You see what I mean? Yep. 100%. Um, And and if there isn't okay, if there is, what does it look like? And how can people who aren't of this faith engage with people uh, who we're talking
0: about? Uh, I don't think I've mentioned this yet. I Uh wrote recently about a podcast series that was about nine episodes by a scholar of religion out of a Baltimore think tank um, named Matthew Taylor. And the title of the podcast series is Charismatic Revival Fury. It is a look at the, uh, the part of evangelicalism that was the backbone of Christian Trumpism, which there were a lot of leaders who uh, activated and mobilized their followers and supporters to be part of, to support the uh, effort to overturn the election and even to be at the Capitol on January 6th. And this, I would encourage people to go listen to that uh, series and to your reaction will understandably be, uh, shocked if you don't come from any religiosity or from a more conventional re- religiosity, you will be shocked and probably even repulsed by a lot of what you hear um, in this. You will think it bizarre and strange um, and and crazy. Um, but I think pressing past that uh, and and hear me out on this is really important because there are two groups of people in that story. One is a set of leaders who, whatever their motivations are, they are activating people towards extremism. The second group are the people I referenced earlier. The normal people working nine to five jobs, often, not always, but often, you know, you know, regular run of the mill, middle-class folks, maybe lower class, but uh, there is plenty of affluence in that in that world as well, but these are not people who are involved in politics. They're people who go to church. They're very involved in church. Um, but here's a good point: like many, many millions of Americans and people around the world believe in the idea of uh, angels, demons, a spiritual world, and even idea an idea of spiritual warfare. One of the most, I think, in, in helpful things about this podcast series is that he explains the ways in which ideas of spiritual warfare have been taken and weaponized and refined to a place where they are active activation and, and activations and, and mobilizers for people to, to become politically radicalized. And I think understanding the distinction between somebody maybe down your street or at your parent, kid's school or somebody somewhere in your universe, understanding the way that they might read this, Passage in in Ephesians chapter six about putting on the armor of God, a passage that Ron DeSantis has mentioned, and it might it might be just like standard run of the mill religion for them. That is not extremism. That is just like what millions of people believe in. You know, spiritual warfare at its most basic level is just really a belief in a struggle between good and evil. And I think understanding the distinction between that and the radicalized version that this, organiz- that this movement, the New Apostolic Reformation, is perpetuating, is one of the most important things that non religious people can do, is understand the nuance and the distinction. Because if, if people who are just going to church and believing in Ephesians 6, you know, feel like everybody who's not like them thinks they're crazy just for believing in that, then that really gives them no alternative but to go to the people who are going to radicalize them. Um, so I think just bringing those people into, out of the isolation and bringing them into a broader conversation is, uh, is, is a really important thing we can do to, to stem political, uh, radicalization and political violence. I
1: can't wait to listen. This sounds so good.
0: No, it's, he (laughs) doesn't, Matthew does a masterful job. It's so well done. Okay. Yeah. All right. Adding to my
1: playlist, um, John Ward, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, um, is there anything we didn't get to that you'd like to touch on in a minute? We'll maybe flip over to politicology plus and talk for a few minutes about the 2024 primary. But, um, but before we do that, yeah. is there anything else you want to, uh,
0: just, uh, just a tribute to my parents there, you know, there's a lot in the book about the conflict within our family, um, which will probably be relevant for a lot of people, um, over, you know, politics the last few years. But, uh, my dad and my dad and mom, uh, and I are still in relationship through all that. My dad read the book, um, really had a lot of <laughs> complaints about it, uh, but we talked through it and, uh, it actually helped our relationship a lot. So I think that that's something that I want to tell people. Again, it goes back yeah. to having those face-to-face yeah. conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent.
1: Okay. Um, and in the meantime, people can find you at johnwardwrites.org. Yes. J-O-N, no H. J-O-N, wardwrites.org. Um, And they can find all the other things that you're up to, including reporting for Yahoo News and the Pence interview, uh, which I just saw on Twitter this morning. Um, Okay, cool. I'd love to have you back anytime. Thanks, Ron. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you and we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.